my whole life, I've been a fraud. I'm not exaggerating. Pretty much all I've ever done, all the time, is to try to create a certain impression of me and other people. Mostly to be liked or admired. It's a little more complicated than that, maybe. But when you come right down to it, it's to be liked, loved, admired, approved of, applauded, whatever. You get the idea. I did well in school, but deep down, the whole thing's motive wasn't to learn or improve myself, but just to do well, to get good grades, make sports teams, and perform well. To have a good transcript or varsity letters to show people. I didn't enjoy it much, though, because I was always scared I wouldn't do well enough. The fear made me work really hard, so I'd always do well and end up getting what I wanted. But then, once I got the best grade, or I made all city, or I got Angela Mead to let me put my hand on her breast, I wouldn't feel much of anything, except for maybe fear that I wouldn't be able to get it again. The next time, or the next thing that I wanted. End quote. That's not me. <laughs> that is the late David Foster Wallace in his short story, Good Old Neon. And I actually think that what Wallace is tapping into is not too far off of what we've seen so far in our series on Elijah. So far, we've seen Elijah do crazy, strange things. We've seen God do crazy, strange things. But this morning, we're going to see that we do strange things. In fact, we do strange, strange things to be loved. And we're going to see those strange things that we do to be loved and what God does about it. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Verse 7. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him, and Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? Verse 15. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire on to it. 
and I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the blation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let no one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning with restless hearts. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. So as we come waiting to hear from you, from your word, from your visible word, would you make it happen? Would you meet us here and give us the rest that our hearts need and that we want? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I just want to highlight really quickly that, that key line from the, the Wallace passage that I just quoted. He said, you know, when you come right down to it, why I do what I do, it's to be liked, it's to be loved. So the story of Elijah has come to a, a climax of sorts. We've seen uh, that, that God's cut off rain from the land. Now three years have passed. The northern kingdom and southern kingdom are split. There's tension brewing in the north. Ahab and Jezebel are uh, ravaging God's own prophets, trying to kill them. There are high places everywhere. Anything and everything is a God. 
they're worshiping small statues. They're worshiping ethereal things. They're doing dances. I mean, it's, it's crazy land when it's come to what the prophets, the false prophets, are up to. And so we see in this story today that we run into this, this small guy named Obadiah. Small meaning that he isn't really involved in the story very much. But he has an important role, and I just think it's worth pointing out. Obadiah comes in and he informs us that uh, Jezebel has been seeking to kill God's prophets. And actually, Obadiah is the one who's hid them away in the caves. And I just want to highlight how important that is for this small role of this person that works in the court of a, of a corrupt king. Obadiah effectively is sheltering God's word. You know, at this time, there weren't books like we know them today. People aren't walking around with Bibles. All they had was the word of the Lord through the mouth of the prophet. And this small man in this small, you know, situation hides these people. He protects the word of God. I just think it's worth pointing out. And so he comes up to Elijah and he says, you know, I I can't believe that it's you. You're here. I I need to tell somebody. And Elijah says, tell Ahab. And he says, no, 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 no. I would prefer not to. Uh, He will kill me if that happens. And uh, Elijah says, I I promise I won't run away. Just go tell him and I will surely follow right after. And so Elijah and, Ob- and, and Ahab confront each other. And Elijah basically says, it's, it's come to a head now. God's ready to do something. But let's not meet on my turf. Let's meet on yours. I'll meet you at the high place. You know the one. I'll meet you at Mount Carmel. And it's there that, that Elijah and God, well, they both do something. Elijah says, Let's meet at your place and let's see whose God shows up. And of course, God does show up. But the text really is driving at two main ideas for this morning. It's asking, who is God? And who is Baal? And furthermore, what does Baal require? And what does God require? So first, let's look at Baal. In verse 26, they say, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. And no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's musing, or he's using the bathroom, or he's on a journey. Maybe he's asleep. You know, that's a direct jab at them from the Psalms. God, of course, never sleeps. And must be awakened. And they cried out loud, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances, until the blood gushed out upon them. What does Baal require? Who is Baal? Baal requires strange things. He wants you so invested in his agenda that you're willing to give yourself to him, that you're willing to bleed for him, that you're willing to dance around the altar to conjure him. He wants you so invested in what he's doing that your whole world would fall apart if you couldn't have him. Effectively, what he wants you to do is he wants you to to dance for a reward. He wants to make you dance, to go to excessive lengths to hide your internet history from your spouse or whoever you think might be watching, all for the reward of, quote, keeping the peace. He wants to make you dance, to make you work far harder than is reasonable for someone in your position or for any given human being, all for the reward of being a sure and good provider. He wants to make you dance and I think this is maybe the hardest one of all, to 
to get your kids up and to feed them and get them off to school and to come back home and to clean the house and to maybe have a side hustle job going on and to plant flowers in the garden because why can't we just use fake ones? And then you have to clean more and then you do, you know, manage, manage some other things and then you pick up your kids from school and you take them to practice and then you come home and, and then you have to make a good meal and, and everyone has to be happy all the time and it's, it's the sure reward of domestic bliss. He wants to make you dance by daydreaming of power and influence and people that you'd like to know and someone that you'd like to be, all for the reward of being on top or being the best. He wants to make you dance, and maybe this is the most vicious one of all, by receiving a paycheck and looking at your bank account and remembering that thing that Jesus said about giving, and looking at your bank account and, and looking at the thing that Jesus said about giving and looking at your bank account and remembering the thing about giving and it all goes to the bank. And I'm only saying that because I do it. And it's all for the reward of financial security. But what's funny about Baal and what he promises is that the reward actually never really comes, certainly not in its fullness. And here's what's so devastating about Baal is that Baal demands something, but he can never really give you what you want. And actually, I've done something in my whole description of Baal. This whole time that I've been describing Baal, I've talked about Baal as a he. I've talked about Baal as a person. Baal as something. And I'm actually doing something that, that Elijah won't even do. And that's acknowledge that Baal is even something. Because Baal is actually nothing. That's maybe the most devastating part about Baal worship is that Baal isn't even there. Listen to it here in verse 29. As, as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering and the oblation, of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. You see, Baal is a god of our own creation. Whatever that may be, maybe it's something that, that is created, but we just invest all that we have into it to give it the weight of godhood, something that, that we think that it can carry. And all it wants from us is one simple thing. It just wants one thing from us, your whole life. It wants to make you bleed. It wants to make you dance and give yourself to it, whatever it is. And now you're asking, and you should be, you're saying, that's horrible news. And why would I ever do that? I mean, why would I give myself to Baal? Why would I want to worship? And I, my only response to that, I think the Bible's response is, of course you do that. Of course you do. You're a lover. You're fundamentally a lover. You're made to love things. You're made to love God. And you're made to experience and to be loved. Now, the problem is, is that we're desperate for the feeling and affection of something and so we'll do it for anything. We'll dance for anything. For a moment, and this is what's so deceptive about Baal worship, for a moment it feels very good. And it, it feels like maybe, maybe the fire will fall. Maybe as we're dancing around the altar, something's going to happen here. But it turns out, it always takes blood and it never goes very well. The, the best example I can think about how this works 
and our, our culture today is the idea of the feedback loop. You know it from social media. You know it from any kind of internet platform that allows you to respond to what people are doing. And we love, we love to, to dance around this altar of um, love my post and, and comment, comment on my stuff and DM me. You know, or what, you know, I'm looking over here. Um, I don't know why. But, um, and, and, and you know what it's like to feel the, the dopamine rush of someone liking your stuff, of affirming your existence, and will just give and will give to it because it feels good. And adults, we're not off the hook on this. We're on the Facebook, you know, and we, we go on the vacation and we post the picture and we say it's really just to keep up with our friends, but it's not. It's to show that we have a, a stable family system and that uh, our kids are really healthy and really attractive and they're varsity letter winners or whatever it is, you know, whatever, whatever the bail is. And it's no surprise that we do this. And I'm not saying that those things are inherently bad. They're really not, the, the platform at least. But what I'm saying is we just want to feel alive. We just want to feel loved. We want the feedback. We just don't know where to get it. And that's the functional experience of Christians and non-Christians. We invest ourselves into something that we think can bring the rain. And because the text goes there, I want to look at what Baal worship actually turns us into. I think this is fascinating. If you read verses 17 and 18, it says, When Ahab saw Elijah, and Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I haven't troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and you've followed the Baals. What does Baal worship make us like? I mean, this is, this is not a new idea in the Bible. We see Pharaoh doing this with Abraham. He's accusing, he's accusing him of, of troubling up the kingdom, of messing with the restored order. Israel does it to Moses in Exodus 14. They say, you know, we, we'd rather just go back there. What you're doing, we don't, we don't even want to be a part of this. You're not helping us. You're, not, you're not a troubler. You, you make trouble. And of course, you'll know the best example of this in the scriptures is, I don't know, every other page of the Gospels, when Jesus goes somewhere and they say, oh, that Jesus, all he does is hang out with prostitutes and sinners. Gosh, I can't believe he's eating with that guy again. What, what a drunkard, honestly. That guy is, is so messed up. It's accusation. What does Baal worship do to us? It makes us accusers. And what do, what do accusers do? What do false prophets do? They speak a reality that isn't real, and they try to get you to convince, convince you that it's real. They try to get you convinced that whatever message they're coming with, however they, they feel, or whatever the idol demands, is the ultimate reality. It's not new to us. It's the snake in the garden. It's, hey, don't eat that. Or do, do eat that. I wish that he had said don't eat that. I mean, better, but... Um, he says, hey, don't... Go, go eat that. Why? I, I think God doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to know stuff. He doesn't want you to be anything. He doesn't even really love you. Of course, Adam and Eve, I thought we were doing the love thing. I thought we were loved. No, no, he just, well, he just doesn't want you to experience reality, what's really true. And you know how the story goes from there. If you don't believe me about, about how the false prophets work, if, you don't, if you're not buying into this reality that this is what accusation does, it creates a judgment, listen to someone smarter than I. Listen to Camus. Here he is. He says, people hasten to judge in order not to be judged themselves. Okay. Each of us insists on being innocent at all costs, even if he has to accuse the whole human race in heaven itself. 
The essential thing is that we should be innocent. As I told you, it's a matter of dodging judgment. I'll tell you a big secret, mon cher. He's French, so he can say stuff like that. Don't wait for the last judgment. It takes place every day. You don't know what life like is like worshiping Baal. You want to know what life is like living where you have to worship Baal? It's that. It's accusation, it's condemnation, it's judgment. So that's really depressing. I mean, honestly, that is horrible. But that's who Baal is. That's what Baal wants. And so now, thank God, literally, let's, let's look at who God is and what he wants and how he deals with it. In verse 31, it says, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, quote, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. What's Elijah doing? I mean, yeah, he's building an altar. But what is he really doing? Elijah's putting 12 stones around the altar. By the way, the text says that there used to be an altar to the Lord here, but there's not one anymore. And Elijah is going there and building something that's representative of Israel. The 12 tribes, all here. And, and some commentators will tell you, and they are right, that Elijah, remember that thing about, you know, pour the water on there and do it again and do it a third time. They'll tell you that Elijah is trying to stack the odds against himself. And admittedly, that's certainly a part of it. I mean, it hasn't rained there in three years. You'd, you'd be skeptical that maybe some sparks wouldn't just fly in and, and start the fire. But what Elijah is also doing is that he's symbolizing that, that Israel is supposed to be a land flowing with milk and honey. It's supposed to be a place full of water. But Israel has traded the God of the scriptures, the God that they know, for the God that they think can bring the rain. And so here it is, Israel represented at the altar. And Elijah gets down, probably on his knees, maybe on his face, maybe he's standing. And he says, oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are the God in Israel. And I'm your servant, and I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O oh Lord, answer me. And this is, so, this is so key. That this people may know you, O oh Lord, our God, and that you have turned their hearts back. So what does God do? What does God do in the midst of all this Baal worship at the highest place? This may surprise you. Definitely did me. He comes and he judges Israel. He comes in a fire on what is represented as, as Israel and its 12 tribes and its fullness, and he comes and he brings the fire. He brings the judgment. The fire is actually so strong that it says that it licks up the water like it's nothing. He's just evaporating it on his touch. Why is God coming to judge? Because God hates accusation. He hates the accusing. Furthermore, he hates that his people and that people in his creation would have to cut themselves and bleed and dance for things that can never actually give them life. And so he comes in a fire and he judges it. And I know, I know what you're thinking because I'm thinking it too. Oh no, oh no. When you start with the judgment, 
I don't want to worship a God that judges. And honestly, and I, I hear that. I don't really want to either. But I want you to see there's actually a beauty here. And it's this. Did you notice that no one was actually harmed in this judgment? No bodies fell when the fire came down. No Israelites were harmed. And you're saying, well, how do you even know that Israelites are watching? If you've ever been to Mount Carmel, you stand on it and you look out over the Jezreel Valley. You can see the Mount of Transfiguration this way. You can see Nazareth over here. You can see um, another city whose name escapes me this way. And uh, y- you can see, I mean, basically the whole, the whole biblical history right there. It's not like these Israelites didn't see what was happening. It's not like they, they just, I, I could imagine them even if they weren't at the base of the mountain, that they were in their house and they saw a flash of light and they hit the floor and they said, the Lord is God. And why can I say that? Why am I saying that they hit the ground and they worshiped? What are they seeing that we don't see? I want you all to hear this. The sacrifice is actually the only thing that's consumed. The sacrifice is the only thing that's consumed. And I know you're hearing, you know, how barbaric, what a, what a horrible system, sacrifice. And why would they worship at that? That's bizarre. But the folks that are hitting the ground that are worshiping, that, that Hebrew construction indicates that, that the Israelites are actually a part of this group that's worshiping, maybe for the first time in a long time. They're doing so because they know Torah. They do. They know it very, very well. And I'm wondering if we actually know it. If you guys know why they would worship. They know Leviticus. They know sacramental instruction. And here's what I'm, I'm confident that they're thinking. They're thinking about Leviticus 17.11, which says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. I'm going to read that one more time. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Y'all, that's the, that's the Old Testament. That's not even the New Testament. These people are hitting the grounds in worship because they see the fire consuming the sacrifice and it just melts them. It obliterates them. Why? Because they know that the blood is the way back in. They know that God's actually inviting them to come back and worship. So who is God? And who is Baal? Well, God is the lover of your soul. He's the one who sees the Baal worshiper. And he comes after that person with a sacrifice. And the text says, and this is so important, it's it's in the perfect. It says, he's turned your heart back to him as if it's already happened. And that's really what Jesus came to do. He came to set the Baal worshipers free to worship someone who always brings the rain. And more importantly, he sent Jesus for wayward Israelites worshiping whatever they could conceive to give them a person who would always bring the rain. A God who actually cares for them. One that they can entrust themselves to. I mean, 
when, when everything is, is so jacked up in your own life and you're thinking, who the heck can I entrust myself to? God's saying, me. I'm the lover of your soul. I made atonement for your being. And so even when your life is total garbage, this sacrifice is an example that God is saying, you can entrust all of yourself to me. You can worship me. You can entrust yourself to me. So we find ourselves, we do, we find ourselves doing strange things to be loved. Strange things. Dancing around the, dancing around the altar of material comfort, of a certain aesthetic, of a lifestyle, of an attitude, dominating others and our, our thoughts and our feelings, a win-loss column, whatever it is for you. And what God's saying is that he is the lover of your soul. And more importantly, Jesus, hanging on the tree, is the sacrifice that has consumed. Because your heart's been turned back when you see that. And so when we see that, and, and God, I pray that we learn to believe it, it actually sets us free to worship the God who always brings the rain. Someone we can always entrust ourselves to. Someone who doesn't make us dance like a fool to earn his affection. He already did it for us. He did it in Jesus. So we look to the sacrifice because as Leviticus says, the life is in the blood. And that's what Jesus has done. Amen.